What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 165 of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, AJ, what's going on, gentlemen? Doing great. 165, that's a nice, that's a nice number. It is a nice number. We're yeah. getting pretty close to 200. We are. Pretty excited. Yes. So, uh, you know, we were looking back and, uh, you know, kind of seeing what some of the topics we've covered. And this is one I feel like we've at least mentioned or something maybe, but I know it looks like we haven't done an episode in a while. Um, well, there's been some significant changes too. Yeah. So. so we're going to... Uh, pretty much redoing. I mean, pretty much if we talked about it before, this is... The redo. It's It was very simple and now it's simple in a totally different way. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. But uh, some, I don't, should we call them new? They've been published, I think, since online at least since June. We're but, still in 2021, so I right, call, we'll them call them new. We'll call them new. Newish. Yes. Uh, newish C-diff. They'll guidelines. be new to a lot of people, I think. So, yeah, we're going to kind of go through some of the changes. Not a lot of changes, more just kind of like updates. Um, there's three big ones that they've kind of added um, or changed around a little bit, but we'll kind of go through the whole topic, um, you know, a little bit in general, and then uh, we'll talk more specifically about where some of these recommendations came from. Um, so hopefully this will be a little bit of a review. But C. diff. Yes. What do you want to start? Clostridium difficile. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. I guess so, right. I didn't realize that um, they actually identified it relatively recently. It was in 1978. Mm-hmm. They knew that there were people had a lot of antibiotic-associated diarrhea and colitis, but it wasn't until then they actually identified that it was C. diff. In a lot of the early cases, they attributed to clindamycin, which it, we know is a big culprit. And and that was a uh, um, like a box warning. Um, on clindamycin yeah. specifically, I don't think they've added that to the, the other, you know, statistically more likely culprits nowadays. But I think clindamycin is the one that started us off. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's because of we're not using clindamycin nearly as often anymore. Uh, fluoroquinolones and then some of the penicillins, cephalosporins have actually uh, started to be more likely candidates of what's causing and leading to um, the C. diff infections nowadays. But that doesn't mean that clindamycin's out of the woods. It's just we don't really use it that much. It's just not used as much. Yeah. Right? It's used a fair amount of kids, it seems, right? Yeah. Not, or, maybe not more than adults, I would think. And I guess if you need, like, you know, an MRSA coverage for an oral option, outpatient, something. You, I've you definitely know. filled, like, it was an adult, and it was just a huge amount of clindamycin. Like, I mean— huge amount of clindamycin for them to finish the course because I guess they needed something probably liquid or whatever they maybe had trouble with, with tablets and it was just so many bottles of clindamycin to mix this is going to be disgusting yes and it yeah it does not taste good um uh, but c diff is usually associated with um being a hospital acquired infection we're all pretty familiar with the the protocols that might need to be taken um if a patient is diagnosed with c diff but it spreads a lot in the hospital it can be contracted in the community and that would be a patient who has c diff um, and had not been hospitalized during the 12 weeks prior to diagnosis so it'd really be a bummer to get um 11 weeks out from the hospital and then get c diff and yeah now that's nosocomial but um yeah, that's, it's usually in the hospital, and um, we also can have recurrent infections uh, as well after they've had it, and we'll talk through both of those. Um, and then just to throw this out there, too, this has been knowledge here for a while, but I don't think we mentioned this at all in the last time we kind of covered C. diff, but um, there was you know some surveillance that was kind of monitoring um, 
C. diff infections from 2003 to 2006, and they started noticing more like frequent, severe, and, and refractory um, infections that you know were standard uh, refractory to standard therapy and more likely uh, to relapse than you know they had kind of seen previously. And um, they started seeing this throughout North America and Europe as well. And so they have like this new strain, if you will, um, that they have a few different kind of nicknames or abbreviations for. Um, one is um, abbreviated as BI, one is NAP1, and then one is ribotype 027. Um, basically, these are um, these names are, are all describing the exact same strain. It's just that uh, based on, you know, the different methods that were used to kind of like type those strains, that's where the different names come from. So now it's kind of like one of those things where if you see the proper terminology, because there's three different nicknames for it, if you will, um, you'll see NAP1 slash BI slash 027. And that's supposed to be, you know, indicative of that specific, more virulent strain um, of C. diff. And the thought process is um, because the strain is... Um, attributed with more uh, toxin production um, compared with some of the original strains that were being studied. Um, they, they kind of noticed that the emergence of this seems to be correlated with the more prevalent use of fluoroquinolones. Um, and then you start seeing this, this fluoroquinolone resistance, um, you know, outbreaks, strains that starts happening. And then, um, you know, they sort of kind of found out that it seemed to be uh, in comparison to the rise in this this virulent strain of, of C. diff as well. Um, there's also another um, version called uh, ribotype 078 um, that was first talked about from in the Netherlands, um, and its severity is uh, pretty similar to the 027. Um, it just seems to be more prevalent in, like, younger patient populations. And, um, you know, there's some other studies that have kind of looked at that, but um, you just it's, it's interesting to see, like, even something like like this, you know, we see the, this resistance and this uh, these mutations. And um, if you look on up to date, they have a really good kind of breakdown of some of the um, genetic uh, factors that have changed. And you'll see that these a couple different, um, you know, loci or you know, thing genes moving just a slightly bit, and the whole you know kind of resistance pattern or mechanism of the the uh, pathogen changes. It's it's pretty pretty crazy. It is crazy. Ribotype 027 sounds like some sort of undercover spy robot or something like that. It, it definitely does. Definitely could be, right? It could be. Never know. So one of the kind of the bad years for C. diff was 2011. Uh, there was an estimated 453,000 initial cases of C. diff infection in the U.S. Um, also an estimated 83,000 of first recurrences of C. diff infection with almost 30,000 deaths which was a lot for one year. Uh, but between the following six years, there was actually a decline in the incidence of C. diff infections, primarily because of a decrease in overall um, healthcare-associated infections, kind of as we became more aware and uh, uh, cautious, yeah. I suppose, right? So in order, you know, for people getting um, C. diff, it's basically, um, you know, an environmental contamination um, from whether it's, you know, lowering the patient's, you know, natural, um, you know, you know, micro um, organisms that, are li that lay in the uh, GI tract. Um, that's in a lot of times that's where we typically kind of think about. C. diff infections occurring as patients who have had a recent um, exposure to antibiotics and thing. But you also will see a lot of patients that, um, you know, especially in the outpatient setting, a community setting where um, they'll, they'll get um, 
infected with C. diff and it, it, there's not really any history of, of antibiotic use or anything like that. And it could be um, literally as simple as just coming in contact with contaminated food or something along those lines. Um, but it is transferred um, via, uh, wait for it, fecal to oral route, everyone's favorite. And uh, that's, um, every time I see that, I'm just like, oh man. Not, not good. Is that what you think? That's what I think every time. You because uh, I'm 12 years you old. You retch every time you see fecal yep. oral route. It's disgusting, but um, you know the fecal oral route ingestion of the spores, and so you know from that they in their spore form, if you will, um, they're not necessarily like activated, but once they get um, ingested and, and are able to kind of um, start to colonize in the GI tract, that's when they, you know, start to become not only active, but also and start producing toxins, but also, um, become potentially susceptible to antibiotics and, and whatnot. Yeah. And we'll talk about it later, but there, there can be a fair amount of people who, uh, are, um, a reservoir. They have C. diff, they could culture for it, but, um, aren't having symptoms. They don't necessarily need treatment. But we'll talk about that. Uh, there are some some risk factors for uh, more severe infection. People getting C. diff and also having a more severe infection. So age over sixty five is definitely one. Um, uh, patients who are on chemo, obese, if they had some sort of GI surgery, um, if they have IBD, cirrhosis, um, and then possibly gastric acid suppression. So we've um, heard about the big push to get um, patients off of. Um, prophylaxis for um, for uh, the um, ulcers in the hospital because it's kind of um, on an order set that's generally used for a lot of people and not everybody needs it. And they think that the PPIs may be related to an increased risk for uh, C. diff. And that's kind of where that comes from. It's funny because I've, I've heard from a few different people now that whenever we talk about the potential for increased risk of um, C. diff infection with like long-term, especially long-term PPI um, use or just get ga- gastric acid suppression in general. Um, I've heard a few people say, you know, oh, the, I, my doctor said the only people that ever worry about that are pharmacists. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's not nice. <laughs> that is one of those classic things that a pharmacist does, uh, which I guess we talked about this in our last episode a little bit, but one of those classic things a pharmacist does on the team is like, yeah. get them off the PPI if they don't need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they do say that uh, the data that, you know, kind of looks at this association, um, you know, it, it's not super clear as far as, you know, how how they correlate and, you know, the duration of PPI use versus the infection risk and all that stuff. Um, so basically what the authors um, from UpToDate and some other sources will basically say that if the patient's on a PPI um, unnecessarily, um, it makes sense to probably discontinue just to be on the safe side. But until they have like true sufficient evidence to show that it's not harmful or is harmful, they, they, there's not like a clear cut recommendation. So if a patient, you know, has some sort of issue where they really do need to be on a PPI, it doesn't mean you have to stop, um, the agent. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, the, you want to talk about a little bit about, uh, the toxins, I guess, before we jump into some of this. Yeah, go um, for it. So, you know, when we think about the uh, exotoxins that kind of um, lead to the potential colitis and then diarrhea. Um, they have toxin A and toxin B. Um, and then the, the without going into too much detail, basically um, toxin B seems to be, um, by some standards, about 10 times more potent than toxin A um, when you're looking at, you know, kind of like its ability to cause that uh, you know, colon mucosal damage. Um, and so there are situations where the strain that the patient's infected with will have um, toxin B only, and they will still basically be just as virulent um, 
in regards to how sick they get um, because toxin B is the one that seems to have the most weight. Um, and then there are cases where, um, you know, like Cole was saying, where they may not have either toxins or non-toxigenic. Um, and they're not producing those toxins, uh, whether it's in vivo or in vitro. And uh, you know, that's where it's, you know, that we don't really consider it pathogenic at that point. Um, but and when we get to the toxins uh, production, when one of our new adjunct therapies is kind of targeting specifically that side of things. So I figured I'd at least throw that in there to mention it. Um, yeah. What do you want to, what do you want to go from here? Cool. Uh, so kind of merging into patients with, um, C. diff, there's some general things to keep in mind. So the infection control precautions are a big one. Um, so if a patient is suspected or proven to have C. diff, they should be placed on contact precautions. Um, healthcare workers should wash their hands before and after patient contact. Hand hygiene is very important, um, specifically with soap and water. They think that's more effective than the alcohol-based hand sanitizers in removing the C. diff spores, um, since a lot of them are resistant to killing by alcohol, which is really unfortunate because what is the most common thing that the healthcare workers do when they leave a patient room? It's stick their hand under the alcohol-based hand sanitizer um, and before they go into the next room. So just another example of how C. diff is um, sinister, for lack of a better word. Um, so yeah, soap and water is favored. Um, another thing that uh, I guess you don't usually think about is, of course, we have um, culprits, antibiotic culprits that frequently lead to C. diff. So an important initial step before thinking about treatment is to discontinue the antibiotic um, that is inciting the C. diff infection as soon as possible. Um, so just some examples of some antibiotics. We mentioned clindamycin and fluoroquinolones. Um, also, um, broad-spectrum penicillins in combination, certain cephalosporins like second, third, and fourth generation, and also carbapenems are, are frequently associated with the C. diff infection. Uh, there's some others that are less commonly associated, but you can still see it. Um, macrolides, Bactrim, first-generation cephalosporins, sulfonamides, um, but those are some of your your uh, primary ones. Um, so yeah, you want to stop it, uh, that antibiotic, unless they need the antibiotic. It's more important to have that to treat the primary infection. If that's the case, then just try to be prudent with which antibiotic you're selecting and see if we can use an alternative that might not be as... Um, uh, significant towards the risk factors for, for C. diff. The last thing kind of initially is um, checking their fluid, nutritional, and diarrhea status. Um, so they very well may need supportive care for these from fluid loss and electrolyte imbalances um, because uh, diarrhea is an unfortunately um, the hallmark, very smelly diarrhea. So I hear, haven't experienced it myself. Um, but very smelly diarrhea is definitely a hallmark of, of C. diff. And so fluid loss and electrolyte imbalance can definitely be common. Yeah, I uh, my first day in the surgical and trauma ICU when I was in uh, on rotation there, um, the preceptor was telling me that uh, um, you know they had this patient with we were, we brought up something about C diff and he said uh, yeah he had I had the worst case ever you know the other day and he started telling me a little bit about it and uh, it, basically he was telling me that uh, he saw some of the cleanup crew if you will in hazmat suits and like mops and stuff just kind of in there slipping and sliding sloshing around <laughs> and i was like awesome i imagine the, i can't um, wait to go back to outpatient what is the monsters inc um it's the 3319 or something like that when they toss them all in the the showers and <laughs> shave them down and wash them with the hazmat suits that's what i imagine with c diff dude if that's the actual like 
code, then Monsters Inc. I'll be very, very impressed. I, I don't think that's the exact one, but it is something 19. 23. Okay, I'm being told by AJ it's 2319. 2319. I was very close. Oh, yeah, that's impressive. We'll chalk that up to you having a son now that that's why you know all about Monsters Inc. <laughs> right now, I don't, he's not old enough for Monsters Inc. yet. But he's he, plenty old enough to watch <laughs> cartoons. Um, I meant to mention that the anti-motility agents that you usually think of with um, diarrhea like um, lapiramide or lamotyl, um, they're generally or traditionally, I guess, avoided. Um, the evidence, There's some evidence that they cause harm, but that can, that's kind of controversial. So in general, we would reserve these for patients who are having difficult keeping up with the fluid loss. Um, and so you're not just going to give everybody lapiramide um, with C. diff because that has been associated with some potential harm. Yeah, I think it's definitely more important too when you think about like outpatient or community pharmacy rather. Um, when the patients coming in because they don't want to go right. to a provider's office or urgent care or something, and they're like, "Hey, I'm gonna take this, you know, lapiramide. Is that cool?" That's where that, in that particular setting, without any other, you know, context or information or any ability to test anything, it's uh, probably a good idea to tell them to stay away from. And then they poop their pants while they're talking to you, and it's like, yeah, maybe. You right. might need to get checked out. And you offer them Gatorade or Pedialyte and just say, listen, <laughs> replenish those electrolytes, yeah, my man. Exactly. No, but uh, that's definitely um, a go because I feel like that's a something that gets asked a lot in that particular setting. Yes. So patient comes in and, uh, you know, we, we, you know, saying, okay, C. diff infection, where are we going to kind of classify that as whether it's mild, severe kind of thing? Um, you know, the first thing uh, we've kind of want to look at is whether or not they, uh, their white blood cell count is um, less than 1,500 um, or above that. That's one of the markers for how we can kind of classify severe um, disease versus non-severe, uh, as well as serum creatinine. Um, if it's less than 1.5, then that's also considered non-severe. So white blood cell count less than 15,000. 15, Did I say 1,500 the first time? I may have less than 15,000 and the serum creatinine less than 1.5. Um, that means non-severe. If the uh, patient has a white blood cell count above 15,000 and their serum creatinine is 1.5 or higher, um, that's going to be considered severe. And then um, we also have uh, fulminant um, colitis or fulminant C. diff, which is um, basically like a more severe and complicated form of C. diff, if you will. And that's where you're getting more of like this systemic toxicity um, that is happening alongside the overall GI issues. Um, so patients that have, you know, hypotension or even shock, um, if there is ileus, um, uh, presence of ileus or megacolon, uh, that's also indicative of um, fulminant colitis. Um, i don't think that there's like a completely like agreed upon um, calculation for severity score, but it's, it the the non-severe and severe um, non-fulminant is kind of agreed upon. But then after that, it's it's a little bit um, up in the air. Well, even within those specific like white blood cell count numbers and serum creatinine, it's not like it's evidence based. It's, yeah, that's more of a consensus. Mm -hmm. um, so it, you know, if they're if they're below like they don't meet those parameters but you feel strongly that it's a severe situation then you can make a clinical decision and say i'm going to classify this person as severe so it's there there's definitely some wiggle room it's not like those aren't necessarily hard numbers or anything yeah um and then as far as like you know the actual treatment decision uh, obviously once you've kind of done your initial assessment, ultimately it is left up to the clinician's judgment and, you know, looking at certain things that could be a potential risk factor for, um, 
you know, more severe cases. So like Cole mentioned earlier, patients that are a little bit older. So 65 years of age and older is tends to be a risk, um, as well as some of the other things that he'd already mentioned. Um, those need to take into, be taken into consideration as well. You know, when you're starting, especially, uh, you know, initial therapy, they've never been treated before. And, um, that's really, uh, you know, where a lot of the big changes are starting to happen. Right. And, um, and before, before we talk about the drugs, there is like, who do we treat? Um, so treatment would be warranted for a patient who's had acute diarrhea, so greater than three loose stools in the last 24 hours without another explanation for that. And then a positive laboratory assay for C. diff, because like we said before, you can be colonized with C. diff and, um, not have symptoms and not necessarily need, um, treatment and pyrrhic treatment before getting the assay can be, um, initiated in certain cases. Um, it really, if you have a very high clinical suspicion that they have C. diff, um, based on their um, severity and the results of the assay are still pending, but you want to get them started on treatment, you can definitely make that call if you have a strong suspicion for that. But not indicated in patients with a positive assay who don't have diarrhea or other C. diff manifestations um, because it is common to be an asymptomatic carrier. So treatment options, and this has changed so many times, I feel like. It sure has. Um, not like huge changes where it's like they start adding in all these different crazy drugs. It's just but like, a, like a swapping of the same thing. Yeah, that's seems, exactly you know? what it feels like. Because yeah. I know we learned it one way when I was in school. And I don't know where you – where I can't – I guess with you, we were in the oral probably bank. in the middle – yeah, bank for The me. first switch. Yeah. Um, and so for a while, you know, it, which is really funny because I literally just did a review of my PA students that are about to graduate on Saturday mm-hmm. to get them ready for the pants exam. And uh, I mentioned um, – Antibiotic that we're gonna talk about today, and Don't I was spoil like, it yet, right? Yeah, and I, it just, it's going to leave you hanging there. And I was like, uh, yeah, this is one you you may or may not see. And then I got you know we started talking about this episode, and I was like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yep. That um, so cliffhanger for you. But uh, yeah, so before um, oral vanc was kind, of, that's really the only time we'd ever see oral vanc because yep. um, usually uh, I think is no absorption from the from the uh, small intestine and whatnot. So it just kind of all gets uh, accumulated in the in the colon. That's why we have to give it IV typically. Um, but and on was, the opposite way, the IV vanc won't really do give anything. good exposure in the colon. So that's why you can only you can't even use IV vanc there. You have, that has to be oral. And yeah, so it's one of those things that, uh, that was kind of the main treatment for a, a while that, and that's what I'm, I kind of thought of. And it used to be a thing where that was really expensive and, you know, it was hard to get access to. And then they, then it became generic and, you know, they start having compounding formulations available and it was just like, all right, we're mm-hmm. in business. Now we might not be in business. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Cause the, well, it's not like it doesn't work or right. anything. It's that's just, a good, yeah, it's, yeah, that's it's, true. It's not, it would not be a wrong option right i would i would say yeah that's a good point yeah but the the new guideline updates um basically the first recommendation of the the three main changes are that when it comes to like the initial um, treatment of you know patient who's never had you know anything you know or any treatment options for c diff it's their first episode um basically what they are now recommending is that patients get um the deficit uh, for doxamycin um, is recommended over vancomycin now. So, wah, wah. Yeah. Um, so, fidoxamycin, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's under the brand name uh, deficit. It's the only um, it's the only treatment like indicated or in, it's 
only uh, disease state indicated for that treatment, hence the the name. And um, it, it's one of those things that like it's it's an antibiotic that a lot of us probably haven't even seen before, right? Um, because it's the, the cost is pretty preposterous, and uh, you know, but it seems to be based on some of the new studies coming out it does seem to be um, a little bit more effective especially when it comes to like the relapse rates of you know the patient who is treated initially and then what likely um, how likely are they to have a reoccurrence that's what we can kind of um, you know see with with some of the new studies is that the actual cure rates initially seem to be the same but the patients who are on um, fenoxamycin over vancomycin do tend to have a little bit less likely chance of having a recurrent episode. And I think that's an important point. So this is based on the new IDSA, SHEA, IDSA and SHEA guidelines. Um, and it, it really is, I mean, they, they don't, it's a weak recommendation. Like the, the level of evidence they put behind it is, is, is not the strongest, but they still felt it was strong enough to say, we're going to recommend this over that. Um, but like Mike said, the, you're still going to get the same cure rate with oral vanc that you would with deficit. Um, you just might prevent recurrence is what the studies are showing. You're not going to necessarily reduce mortality. We don't have that kind of data. Reduce recurrence. So um, to that point, the if, if like it's going to be more expensive than oral vanc just right now it is. So if cost is an issue, the people we want to kind of target for using deficit over oral vanc in those cases, if access or cost is an issue, would be the high risk patients. So the ones over sixty five, the ones with compromised immunity, severe C diff, um, the um, the robots. Um, a spy, the ribotype 027. <clears throat> so those, the people who fall into that classification, we want to do everything we can to prevent recurrence because they're going to be a higher risk for having poor outcomes. Um, but in general, if you don't have good access to it, oral bank is still, like we said, not wrong. Just they are preferring fidoxamycin. Yeah. And, you know, dosing wise, the preferred dosing recommend, um, recommendations is the fidoxamycin 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. Um, there was one study, um, however, that used, um, like what they call pulse therapy basically. And they did initially, um, they did the 200 milligrams twice a day. Um, and then after the initial, um, I gotta get the right thing. I had it right in front of me, and then I switched my screens. Um, but uh, basically, they they continued once daily after that um, for the an extended period of time, up to I think it was the twenty day mark. Um, I gotta find this so I can actually say the correct thing. But um, it, the um, ex, uh, extended pulsed regimen is what they refer to it as, um, and and that was compared directly to vancomycin. So it was um, 200 milligrams twice a day for days one through five, and then once daily um, on alternate days on days seven through 25. So I'm, I'm glad I found that so going off of my. Uh, this That's is odd. That's so this is like one of the studies that they used. It doesn't. Um, actually the actual name of the study was the extend trial. And, um, that was looking at, uh, you know, the, the fidoxamycin directly compared to vancomycin, um, in patients that were 60 years of age and older. And, uh, that was, uh, in, in Lancet infectious disease in 2018. Um, so th that was the regiment they happened to use in that particular case. Um, so, and there's kind of some, some discrepancies as far as like the patient uh, way that they reported kind of the outcomes and things like that. But um, the standard dosing for fidoxamycin is still 
twice a day for 10 days. And the um, twice a day is nice. I mean, the oral vanc is four times four a day times for 10 day. days. And I can tell you that four times a day dosing is a pain in the behind. Yeah. Um, and hard to keep up with. High risk for uh, for non-adherence too. So I think that's good. There's a backup option, um, an alternative that is generally considered less effective, um, which is the flagell. Was was flagell recommended? Is that what you were referencing? Like when you were when coming I was in school, through? Yeah. Okay, so that was first line then. For like the non-complicated and you know less non-severe, I should say. Um, so that, yeah, it was kind of like metronidazole is probably a good option. And then if they then if they have a recurrent one, then go vain. Don't you love how you have to relearn things? So it's only been a short amount of time since you've been out of school, or relatively short. I mean, imagine yeah, you know because I'm, I'm so young. Still. Imagine That's how often crazy. things will change over the course of our career. Isn't that crazy? I know. That's why you got to listen to podcasts and stay up to date. I Literally, the only thing you need to do is listen to podcasts <laughs> like, and be fine. Got to do it. Um, so yeah, metronidazole um, is generally considered less effective for the treatment of non-severe, um, but it would really only be if oral vanc or fedoxamycin is not available or unaffordable or, or certain or that sort of thing. But generally avoided in um, patients who are frail or if they're over 65 um, or if they develop uh, C. diff in association with IBD you want to um, avoid it. But like I said, the 10-day thing is um, is important. That's that's the recommendation for the non-severe duration. Um, there are instances where um, it might need to be for longer. Um, so in the setting of another underlying infection required pro- requiring prolonged duration of their antibiotics. So if you're treating a primary infection um, and they have to stay on that antibiotic, but they also have C. diff. In this case, we might prolong the treatment of the C. diff course. So the recommendation for this is to treat the C. diff throughout the antibiotic course plus an additional tail of one week after the completion of the antibiotic uh, course. So I think that's an important thing to mention just because somebody has C. diff doesn't mean they're only going to get it for 10 days. Um, if they're continuing a primary infection antibiotic, they need to have it for, for potentially a fair amount longer. And, and also, too, like if you look at the American College of Gastroenterology um, guidelines for treating C. diff, um, when they talk about their initial episode um, of non-severe C. diff, they have the vancomycin um, four times daily for 10 days as um, they're a strong recommendation based on low quality of evidence. And then you look at the fedoxamycin um, 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days as a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. So even they are kind of mentioning that. So um, it's kind of interesting. But the the big pushback is going to be the cost of fedoxamycin. So it, it is, I think the AWP is still like upwards of the high 3,000 mark for, you know, a 20-day supply or a 10-day supply. Um, so not going to yeah. be a, a Which great I remember option. the bank cost. I mean, I, it was probably like, I mean, I, I mean, I would have to look at it. I could spitball, but it's still like not like five bucks. It's going to be like a, a couple hundred. But obviously, with insurance, you know, it, yeah. as long as they cover it, it doesn't matter. But and I think some of the other generic formulations, like the first compounded solution, some of the other ones they had, I think that one was fairly cost effective. Yeah. Um, but it definitely was. I mean, I remember being like a you know an, an intern and stuff where the oral bank was still really pricey. Right. Um, but fenoxamycin being brand name only is is still very expensive. That being said, um, if you have a patient who has commercial insurance and you do want to kind of follow the newest guidelines, um, then if you check out um, MerckConnect.com slash Deficit, um, there is patient uh, assistance and copay assistance on there. Um, and basically, you know, you can get the copay down to 50 bucks um, if the patient has commercial insurance. Now, 
if you have TRICARE or Medicare, Medicaid, or, um, you know, the self-pay, obviously that's not going to be very helpful. But the copay card wouldn't be helpful, but they, um, they usually have a different program, which would probably be a time inhibitive process where you would apply to have it for free from the manufacturer. Um, but considering this needs to be treated quickly, it probably wouldn't be a reasonable option. Yeah. But you know, it is available. I mean, there's definitely options out there. So make sure you look through uh, um, those if, if you need to go that route. Because I think mean, the card covers up to, um, like, it's $3,400 per prescription that they'll pay for. Nice. So, yeah. Um, another kind of reason that fidoxamycin is um, now considered first line, not just because of the risk of recurrence, but its effect on the microbiome, right? So that's obviously a big concern with antimicrobial resistance and that sort of thing. So far, it seems that there's a minimal alteration of the microbiome with fidoxamycin. It's not used very often. Um, the risk of bowel colonization with vank-resistant enterococci associated with vank and flagell use is um, comparably much higher than with fidoxamycin. So I think that's a, another another reason why they are kind of favoring it. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. Um, so yeah, that's the big, uh, the big initial, you know, treatment, um, recommendation change that we saw. Um, the other, um, kind of thing that we need to look at now is potential, um, ad adjunctive treatment options that we have, um, specifically when we are thinking about our, uh, recurrence of C. diff. So, with the first um, C. diff recurrence, um, they still kind of have the same recommendations, um, and that's where they actually mention um, the fidoxamycin 200 twice daily for 10 days or doing it twice daily for five, um, followed by once every other day for 20 days. Um, so not quite the same that was used in that one study, um, but that's another um, like pulse regimen that they offer in the guidelines themselves. And then um, same with vancomycin, they have a... Um, a tapered or pulsed regimen that you can do for that one as well. Um, an example of, of that with vancomycin would be like doing 125 milligrams four times daily for um, 10 to 14 days, um, and then two times daily for seven days, once daily for seven days, and then every two to three days for two to eight weeks. Um, you know, that's a lot, but it's, it's an example regimen that they, they do have in there, uh, but they still have the preferred regimen is fidoxamycin, even if it's the first um, recurrent um, episode. And then they say that we should also be looking at adding bezalotuximab, um, 10 milligrams per kilogram, uh, which is given intravenously. Um, and then that's given along with the administration of standard of care antibiotics. Yeah, I think this is a pretty cool drug. A few years old now, but it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to the C. diff toxin B targets that. Um, so just another example of how monoclonal antibodies are taking over the world. Yep. But um, yeah, I think it's a cool little drug. And and you know the the concern I think from the gut not concern but the thing that the guidelines do mention is. You know, it's something that a lot of times you have to go to an infusion because it's IV, so you have to go to an infusion site to get this. And so the logistics of not only getting, you know, the medication, you know, prescribed and then having to go actually get it administered and infused, it can be a little cumbersome. And then, you know, the insurance carriers are really going to be wanting this to be coming from an infectious disease um, specialist or a gastroenterologist. And a lot of times C. diff can be treated by you know, whether it's a hospitalist or a primary care, you know, provider or something. And so, um, it, the co getting this covered is going to be another tricky kind of thing to navigate. And so that's something that you probably is going to take a while before we start seeing more, um, patients being 
actually given this, but it's something that they do recommend now um, based on the studies and, and showing that you can reduce the uh, the, the recurrence um, the recurrent rates um, in the future once this patient is given this on top of their standard of care antibiotics. Yep. So definitely an option for recurrence. One that I always like to mention is um, the fecal transplant, right? I always think that's super interesting, but it's like a totally real thing, which just sounds so crazy. Um, but for patients who have a third or subsequent um, uh, C. diff infection recurrence, um, so they have to have at least three episodes, so an, an additional episode plus two recurrences, um, who present with a fourth or further, a good option can be the fecal transplant. So what is this thing? I, I, so this is how I know we've talked about C. diff before because I remember talking about this a long time ago. You said you said something about a, a, a poo shake, I believe. I did the- talk about the poop shake, which is a thing, but that's a little bit different. That's kind of to colonize their, their microbiome a little bit. So this is not a poop shake. Um, it should be administered via a colonoscope because a larger volume of stool can be instilled in the colon. But they do have an oral capsule version, but it's not as it's not as recommended because you'd have to take a whole bunch of capsules. Um, but basically, they're taking a donor's stool mm-hmm. and instilling it into the colon with a colonoscope and re-colonizing um, their microbiome with different flora that'll hopefully, you know, out-colonize the C. diff because that's part of the big reason C. diff happens. You have an antibiotic, it wipes out your um, your intestinal flora, C. diff takes over, and now we have an infection. So we can just replace it with another person's poo. <laughs> and then problem solved. I love it. I Oh, you get paid. No way. $40 per stool. For, oh. $40 per stool? You're literally pooping gold. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. For all you students listening that really need some extra coin. Yeah, forget about donating plasma. Yeah. You've got a, you've got, you're regular. Yep. You know, you you don't have, um, you don't have IBD or something. Not that it, well, I'm sure there's some microflora. Maybe maybe you have a, maybe you have a better production. Maybe you have a better production, you know? Yeah, I mean. Go for it, dude. Yeah, I think Cole, I think secretly Cole's going to sign. I don't up think I'd be a good donor. I've, I have a hist. Uh, you know, I just you know, I don't know. I don't think I'd be a good option. I, feel like I don't we're, think I, feel I don't like think we're getting to know you on a whole different level now. I don't think I'd want to curse somebody with my bowels. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I mean, if if I knew that somebody had had really good bowels and I was having trouble, be like, hey man, let's just swap. Can you? St- <laughs> so the the alternative to that would be a colectomy or be a surgery to have a portion removed um so in 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 many cases at least up to date favors the fecal transplant over that but that is the surgery is another option and so uh yeah those are the three main kind of changes that we see um and when it comes to like fulminant um uh, C. diff infection, we, they still do recommend uh, vancomycin, 500 milligrams, four times a day, um, whether it's either mouth or, or nasogastric tube. Um, and then if there's a, uh, if um, there's ileus, then um, you want to consider uh, adding a rectal installation of vancomycin instead. Um, but it's one of those things that, uh, and, and they do mention you could also potentially consider metronidazole um, uh IV as well, um, along with oral or rectal vancomycin, if if um, ileus is present, um, to make sure that you actually can get the antibiotic to the site of action. Right. Um, but uh, ileus being a bowel obstruction, which is really just like a loss of muscle tone in a certain portion of the colon that, yeah. that obstructs. Absolutely. Um, and so you know, it's not a ton of changes, but um, you know, it, it is interesting that now they they've moved fidoxamycin up. I didn't really think I was not expecting that one, but uh, no, I wasn't. I have seen it dispensed once. 
I have. I've seen it on a shelf of a pharmacy one time. That's about it. I did see it dispensed once. Um, I think we'd probably be remiss if we didn't mention probiotics, which come up a lot with the C. diff conversation. The verdict may still be out, but at this point, not enough evidence to support the use of probiotics for C. diff uh, prevention. Probiotics can reduce um, general like hospital-associated diarrhea a little bit. Um, I think there's some reasonable evidence for that by reducing it by like a, a day kind of thing if a patient is taking an antibiotic. Um, but to actually prevent C. diff doesn't seem like there's evidence for that. Yeah. But yeah, so make sure you check out the guidelines. It's the Infectious Disease Society of America. Like I said, it was first published in um, in June online and I think officially like in print in um, September, I believe. Um, but yeah, those, again, just to kind of recap, the three changes is the... Um, Pushing up a fidoxamycin is the preferred option for the not uh, only the initial infection, but also recurrent um, episodes as well. Um, fidoxamycin is the preferred uh, over vancomycin. And then patients that have a uh, um, potential for their first standard, uh, or not standard, but the first recurrent episode, um, they do um, say to add on um, bezalotuximab um, as an adjunct therapy as well. So there you go. Anything else? That's all I got. Cool. So there you go. There's your update, guys. And then we'll uh, hopefully touch on this topic again in two more years when there's new When they change it. Yeah, change, they change it back to flagile. Yeah, metronizole will be the go-to again. We'll just replay our old episodes. But uh, yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening. Hope that was helpful. Um, if you have any questions for us, the uh, emails will be in the show notes. And you can also reach us on any of the social media platforms. And um, also don't forget if you want to text uh, clinical questions or anything like that directly, you can reach us at 415 943 six and um yeah i've actually been we've been getting some good uh clinical case type questions on there it's been kind of cool i don't know if it's it, it could be students cheating on clin apps or something like that and getting me to answer their stuff for them i don't know but i've gotten some good stuff from alleged pharmacists um that have uh, been pretty interesting so uh appreciate those questions and stuff it's, it keeps us on our toes too but um yeah thank you guys so much for the support and we'll catch you next time have a great one